Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on today to chat. Yeah, it's wonderful to be taking this time with you, Alicia. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. So I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, a suburban town just over the George Washington Bridge from the city where most parents uh, commuted and traveled into the city. But my dad was a dentist, and so he was locally based. My mom taught little pre-K and then taught moms how to play with their kids in, in educational ways. And so she did that locally as well. And our food, it, it was interesting sort of what what the food world was like there uh, for us. My, my mom was born in Germany. She was a, an emigre from Hitler's Germany. And so there were some strong European influences in some of the dishes, but clearly in the sensibility. And, um, and so she was, she was not one to embrace, you know, industrialized food for the most part and really cooked with real ingredients and insisted on that in, in many ways. It's not like she was cooking German dishes. She was 10 when she left Germany and, um, and, and actually got her culinary grounding from the joy of cooking, which her mother-in-law gave her when she married my dad since she needed to know how to take care of her darling son. Um, <laughs> but she was always, she was always grounded in, in, in good ingredients, simply prepared. There was no Jolly Green Giant in our house. There was no Wonder Bread. And it wasn't long before, you know, like when I was a young teenager, health food stores started to pop up and, you know, she was packing me rice cakes and little Gorp combos as part of my lunch. So my parents also brought us into the city a lot to experience the diversity of life and culture, whether it was art or cuisines. And so that I was exposed as a, a young person to Middle Eastern food and Hungarian food. And an important sort of dining experience for me was when I got taken to a Brazilian spot and I ate feijoada. Um, you know, so it was like the world is diverse and it's exciting and, and, and food is part of that discovery of difference. And whatever homogeneity was part of my experience in the suburbs or deadening about being in the suburbs, they counteracted that with a lot of exposure to um, the world. So grateful to them for that. And, you know, in the book, you write about this very food centric upbringing, but, you know, was it, was it different from how your peers were growing up? This, the, you know, no Jolly Green Giant, no Wonder Bread and going into the city a lot. Like, were, did you have a sense that this was in contrast to kind of the dominant ways of eating? I mean, we had other friends that ate good food, but my mom, if I think about like my peers at the time, we definitely stood out as not completely outliers, but definitely on the on the good food edge of things. But in the dominant culture, in the in the school cafeteria, where lots of people were buying what the cafeteria ladies were preparing, you know, I always brought my lunch. And so that was always an expression of my mom's values. And so, yeah, the, you know, I had to explain lunch to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are those rice cakes, you know? <laughs> but I don't, I don't remember it being 
a, a source of too much embarrassment, but it, it definitely was a, a shift there to, to mm-hmm. say that I, I didn't look like everybody else, but there were lots of ways that I didn't look like everybody else. <laughs> and, you know, I've read a lot of memoirs of farm to table chefs that really aren't grappling with, you know, kind of economics or, or restaurant realities in the way that yours does. Um, and you, you say that you write that your first jobs in French restaurants, you saw them as serving rich food to rich people, but you kind of came around to the idea that a restaurant could have a bigger purpose through reading Wendell Berry. How did you establish your own politics and how did they evolve while you went from working in restaurants to owning restaurants? In some ways, I mean, my politics, it's about how did I realize that that food had a political side to it, you know, because my politics were always liberal. I mean, right. my, my parents were lefties. And so that kind of thing was always in the household looking through a leftist lens of mm-hmm. politics. But then I don't think they I don't think they had much awareness of what the cultural politics were so that fine art. I mean, and a lot of people didn't, um, and and some of that's only coming into conversation now. You know, it's just like what paintings hang at the Met or in MoMA is a conversation that nobody was really having about whether that was just white guys or we're looking mm-hmm. at objects that were stolen from peoples who lived in other lands. I mean, you know, there was sort of the discussion about the Elgin marbles being stolen from from Greece, but that whole larger conversation about colonialism and wasn't one that was being had um, until very recently. So Mm -hmm. in the world of food, once I said and expressed the idea that I was interested in becoming a chef, it was, well, go for the best. And so the best was defined as, you know, what's at the top of the pyramid, which is oat cuisine, uh, French oat cuisine. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tried to pursue that. And I got a job in a what I say in the book is sort of um, a douzième level, a second level French restaurant, the, the holy trinity of Le Cirque and Le Cremaille, not Le Cremaille, uh, Le Grenouille and Le Pavillon. Those restaurants weren't interested in taking me and, um, or Le, and Le Côte Basque, that's actually the three. And they sent me somewhere else and so they, they needed some help and, and I found it a completely oppressive kind of cooking mm-hmm. and 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 bogus and this sort of wonderful chapter I, I don't know you know speaking about your your latest thing about wounds I, I write the chapter about how I burned myself terribly in trying to hold on to my job mm-hmm. um, yep. you know we were opening cans of escargot that were that came from Taiwan and stuffing them in little shells and plugging them with with herb butter and 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 the specials would be developed by the chef when he came back and, and was just kind of this interchangeability of, of this garnish mixed with that garnish, therefore is has this name that Escoffier created a hundred years ago. And um, it, it had no relationship to ingredients, to freshness, to anything inspirational. And I was like, I hate this place. And I got fired. Um, but, you know, I got fired because I didn't belong in that culture. And, and yeah. so I found my way to, uh, I mean, there probably were some other jobs, but I found my way to a, a job at La Colombe d'Or, which was cooking the food of Provence. And so that was my first entry into 
regional, a regional food as opposed to um, haute cuisine. Mm-hmm. And with that comes a very different approach to ingredients. Um, it's not about making it richer and adding lots of butter and making it so refined that you didn't need a fork and a knife, you could eat it with one hand, or that you're attenuating the taste by adding all this butter to it. Mm-hmm. You know, regional food is much more direct. That I, I worked unsuccessfully. I tried to get into the haute cuisine world of midtown high-end French restaurants. It was a culture that I didn't belong in, and I also realized it wasn't food that was um, exciting me in any way. And slowly I found my way to a job at La Colombe d'Or, a, pretty much the first Provençal restaurant in New York City, and uh, certainly one to put it out there in a, you know, in a modern way for, for diners at that time. And what I realized in being there was that regional foods and, and the cuisine of Provence in particular was was really diametrically opposed to what haute cuisine, which, which was always trying to make things richer and more delicate and, and more attenuated, as opposed to cooking directly with the ingredients, maybe keeping the animal on the bone, but also that the vegetables were, were less adulterated. Not to say that we didn't chop things in... Brunoise or wanting it to look orderly, but but um, that power and punch and zest and you know sort of explosions of flavor were uh, were goals in that cooking as opposed to delicacy, and that started to really change my head and and I never looked back from that and and never really tried to get into the the world of haute cuisine again but with it there was also this conversation I remember having a conversation with with a fellow cook and he was talking about well let's study the the cuisines of the poor people of the world and and I was like why and I started to realize that that this whole notion of 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 haute cuisine was wrapped up in a kind of colonialism and exploitation of of cultures, you know, in terms of trying to go out and conquer the 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 globe, and um, and that those, in fact, were. So then it sort of started to morph into well, who's in the dining room, and are these fat cats people that I want to cook for. And, and so there's always sort of that balance between, um, you know, w- what are we cooking and who are we cooking for? And, and I mean, it, you know, in, in a certain way, that was a choice that I made in terms of what kind of a restaurant that Susan and I opened, that it was never trying to be a high-end restaurant. It was not priced that way because I didn't want to cook f- for those people and just be surrounded by that. I wanted to have a, you know, it's not like it was cheap or, um, I mean, it was still a mid-priced or higher-priced restaurant, but I never wanted to developing a a milieu in the restaurant that this is food for the wealthy. And and then, you know, and what comes with that, and I write about this a little bit as well, is, is that those restaurants are trying to sell the, they're still 
selling you the idea that they have access to something that nobody else has access mm-hmm. to. It's not just that the diners has more money in their wallet or on their credit card than other people, but it's it's this mythical notion of selling the idea that, that the chef as the the gatekeeper has access to ingredients that nobody else has access to. Mm-hmm. And that's why you should come eat in my restaurant. And I've always sort of hated that notion. I want to I, I wanna be a good cook. I want people to like my cooking or appreciate what I'm doing um, because I do it well and I do it with technique and I make it delicious or I make it beautiful, but I'm working with the same ingredients that everybody else is has access to. And, and, um, and we can build a cuisine and a reputation based on abundance, not on scarcity. Absolutely. And I mean, how do you think about the role of a chef? In, in the book, you write about, you know, trying to have a non-hierarchical kitchen and, and, and trying to, and how that didn't work, you know, <laughs> that, like having an egalitarian kitchen didn't necessarily work. But, and we've been having these conversations now about like, how do we create an egalitarian, equitable kitchen space? And you know, how did you take these ideas that you learned from what you didn't want and apply them in a way that actually made sense when, when you opened Savoy? Well, you know, we can only ever work with where we're at historically in a certain way. So, you know, the what might feel like standard practice today wasn't then, which was the idea that the front of the house was um, was all pool tips and that that was a way that I wanted to encourage cooperation and teamwork not people have you know i mean i mean we understand even more acutely what's wrong with tipping today than we did then but the idea that you were going to give a territorial section to somebody that they controlled the flow of dollars that came and went in that in that section i mean this is absurd right so that was a, a change that we made and 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 with it the completely expressed values that we're going to work together and we're also going to work together um, between the front and the back of the house and and so that was always a a challenge um you know certain people came into the restaurant having had different life experiences or work experiences and didn't always treat, you know, cooks didn't always treat the front of the house with full respect and, and, and in the other direction as well. And so that was always a teaching moment, always an opportunity to continue to model um, for people that we need to treat people with respect. And, and uh, so that, you know, that was an ongoing project. And then, you know, I, I as you referred, that this is like I opened the, the restaurant where we didn't have any prep cooks. We, everybody did their own mise en place. And I was really dedicated to that idea because I, I wanted people to take responsibility for how they, for what their mise en place was. Was it cut nicely? Was it clean? Was it fresh? You know, it's not just sort of like, what is this product? You know, <laughs> who, who did this? But people, you know, it, it didn't always have efficiency to it. And, and there's a sort of a division of responsibility that is part of the manufacturing industrial model that people tried to convince me was more efficient, meaning more financially 
lucrative that I needed to embrace. And they were right. I mean, they were right because it's so hard to make any money in the restaurant business. Um, and, and so you look, so what, what compromises can you make that still feel okay, that they're compromises, mm -hmm. but they're not, you know, detrimental to the, to the product. And, and so that's a, that's a whole project to, right. um, to, to say, what am I comfortable with? What am I not comfortable with? And how do I continue to find that balance? And, right. um, but you know, on a certain level, I don't know. I mean, I, I again, I, without going deeply into the whole thing around the burger, there was, there were compromises that then got made in the, in the restaurant that then I ended up going like, Jesus, what, this isn't the restaurant that I started out with and that, mm -hmm. and that fed my soul and I'm, and I can't, and I don't know how to get back to what I once was and maybe I can't and that sort of led to some discouragement and, and uh, ultimately to closing the restaurants. So. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it, in a similar vein, you, you write about butter and you just spoke about butter as kind of representative of haute cuisine and of this French dominance of, you know, what good cooking is in the, in the minds of people who both worked in restaurants, but also went to restaurants and how the, you know, rise of olive oil led to this kind of understanding that there were other cuisines in the world beyond continental European cuisine. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting to me because I think I like, I remember the moment when everyone was started to use olive oil, um, but I never, I think, thought about it in this way necessarily. Um, right. And I wanted to ask, you know, like, can you kind of expand more on, on that moment? And also you, when you talk about other cuisines, you do talk about Palestinian cuisine. And that really made an impression on me because usually that's not something um, people in food media say is it, you know Palestinian cuisine goes a little bit under the radar um and so yeah it's, those I guess are two questions <laughs> yeah those are two, two two topics but you know um but let's talk about them okay. um so the butter chapter is really to me a very interesting chapter in some ways it really reflects some of the complexity of the book and mm -hmm. you know in what's good I'm trying to I'm not just writing um, a, a memoir. I'm also sort of telling stories about ingredients and our relationship to those ingredients and mm -hmm. some of that's botanical stuff. And, and in the butter chapter, it's really historical and cultural. And I open that chapter by, by talking about the fact that um, there was only margarine in my house when I was little and sort of that I think that grew out of rationing food, food in specifically butter being rationed during World War II, and that my parents mm -hmm. experienced that and got used to margarine and sort of, you know, you 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 come to like what you have around you because that's that's what it is, um, and that it was our black housekeeper who um, introduced me to butter and um, showed me what a far superior. Um, cooking fat and tasting fat it was and and it wasn't long before there were two butter dishes sort of side by side that there was this half stick left over that she hadn't finished when she cooked she cooked food for us um, next to the margarine and then soon I was you know buttering my toast with butter instead of margarine and and so 
that part of the 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 chapter is sort of about a black cook who came out of the south and came made the the the, the great migration to the north for better opportunity and used a great skill set that she had, which was that she cooked with skill and flavor. And that was part of what she did in our family and that we cherished her for it, all of us. But I took that, you know, with me going forward. And so I have some gratitude there for introducing me to that world. But what butter was doing in French cuisine was that they they were always looking, the French cuisine is sort of looking for homogeneity, right? I mean, it's like they want a sauce that is, uh, whether it's a cream sauce or a butter sauce or Bordelais, it kind of like lays over the, the whatever you're, you're saucing and completely envelops it. So the, the idea of emulsification, right? I sort of go into this, the, the poetry or the philosophy of pursuing emulsification as opposed to the unemulsified. And so Italian food and cooking with olive oil tends to be um, about unemulsified sauces. That is showing the different ingredients and that something is broken or not brought together, or we see the, the diverse and varied ingredients. And so there's something kind of deep in that, Mm -hmm. um, that we're not trying to bring everything together. We're saying that, you know, herbs are herbs and oil is oil and, and, and here's some chopped up capers and some bits of olive and that there's, that there's beauty in unemulsified life. And, um, and I think that that, you know, that's, that's part of what olive oil did, um, and and as I also said, it's sort of it's the beginning of shifting away from France as the center of haute cuisine and beginning to look to, well, who else cooks with olive oil and what do they do with it? And um, and so that took me into the Mediterranean and being excited by the foods of North Africa or the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, Turkey, Greece, Lebanon, um, all of that. And and all of those are such exciting flavors. I mentioned the Palestinian cuisine in the book because I think it's important, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and I write about some aspects of that. I, there's a chapter about Passover in the book and that Mm -hmm. I used Passover to explore the world of Sephardic foods. That is the, the Jews who were expelled from Spain, um, and those are not my people. My, my people are kind of the Northern European Jews, what, what are known as Ashkenazi Jews. And, you know, that was matzo ball soup and, and, and pot roast. And uh, it had been served at my Passover table for decades. And I was like, oh, I am so sick of this. And, I, <laughs> you, know, do, you know, all the jokes about that people sometimes make about Jewish food not being very interesting or just, you know, a hunk of meat on the plate kind of thing. And it's like, well... We've then, over the last 20, 30 years, people have started to say, well, Jewish food can be really exciting and it's really diverse. And so for me, I used Passover as a way of exploring all of that and looking into what are the Jews of Morocco eating, Tunisia, Greece, Turkey, all of that. And so with that, then you start to go, well, many times those foods reflected the cuisine of the place itself where were where were jews living and 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 is the food 
really all that, aside from following the kosher rules, kashrut rules, is the food all that different from the people who were living there who, around them who were not Jewish, right? So a lot of those foods are similar or the same. And so it led me to be able to then sort of say, okay, what, what is going on in Israel today? And specifically, sort of at the same time that we have this rise of Israeli expansionism and Israeli exploitation of um, the Palestinian people and the, and the conflict not moving any closer to any resolution in, um, you know, it's been going on all my life, that there's this rise of interest and excitement in the uh, food media around Israeli food and Israeli mm -hmm. cuisine. And so it immediately begs the question of what what is this food? Where did it come from? You know, what is, not where did it come from, but I mean, um, <laughs> it's not like it's coming from outer space, but I mean, it's like, what is this food about? What, what stories does it reflect? And part of, not all of what's being talked about in terms of Israeli cuisine, because there are many cultures and many Jews who have come to Israel, and, and so those dishes are diverse, but a lot of that is the food of the region, which is the food of the Palestinians. And what is that, and why isn't that something that we are really celebrating and paying attention to, and using that moment to, to go, how does this whole culinary story feed into the the political story and mm -hmm. um, or vice versa is the food story being used to color the political story that somebody wants to tell i mean you know history is always told by the victor right mm -hmm. i mean or that's the one of the phrases that people <laughs> think is important to look at is like what what is this history who's telling the story mm -hmm. and so this is a good moment for us a really important moment for us to be looking at that in terms of the the, the cuisine as well and so yeah you know our food is always has a political aspect to mm -hmm. it and is always worth looking at and thinking about and and so that you know, back to I guess a, a while ago, you 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 know you said something about Wendell Berry and 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 all of that. It's just like that moment of finding that that essay and that changed my whole outlook and my lens. So you know, it is expressive of our culture and our values, and we need to be looking at that. Right. One of the things that I that I'm using as a signature and inscription in in my book when I'm Signing it for people who I don't necessarily know is our food is a self-portrait. Keep painting masterpieces, and um, the so the part of the self-portrait is that that you know what is it? What is our food saying about who we are and what our culture mm -hmm. is and what our values are? And so we need to keep thinking about that and keep making choices and shaping that so that it really reflects what what our, our values are. Right, right. Well, you mentioned here also food media where it, it was telling the story of Israeli food and what does that what did that really mean and what did it really reflect? And 
one of the first mentions, maybe the only mention of food journalists in the book uh, refers to complaints about ramps, about how like they're trendy, they're not actually that great. Like, you know, the kind of stuff that food writers who have to write five things a day and put it out there do um, to just get people's attention. Um, but, you know, I wanted to ask, what is your perspective on food media generally? Has it changed when you had a restaurant to when you don't have a restaurant? Do you really consume a lot of food media? Mm. Big topic, Alicia. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the world, the, the world of the food media was a lot smaller when we opened the restaurant in 1990, right. but we still understood at the time that they had to generate content all the time. And, um, and so that was both good and bad for us. I mean, obviously we saw that if we could figure out that, that the reason people came around and, and were looking for things or, or that we could suggest ideas to them was that they needed content. Um, mm -hmm. But you also start to see where that's hollow. I, mm -hmm. I also think that we're in a moment where, you know, independent of the food media, mm -hmm. um, I think we've come to realize that reporters are not just innocent bystanders, but there are actual participants in the story and the shaping of the story and the framing of of, mm -hmm. of the way we think about things and how fraught that is um, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the politics. And, and for a long time, I don't think we understood what that looked like um, in the food world. But now we do. We understand that in certain ways that as the gatekeepers, that certain people who write at certain publications, they are the tastemakers. And so they tell you where to go or what to think about um, food experiences is fraught and you know again some of it gets shaped as you know white elitist sometimes male people being the ones who are anointed and partly they continue to reward the people who are part of the club that they're in you know and it's just like that gets back to the haute cuisine thing and it gets back to what paintings are hanging at the in MoMA or at the Met, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what is blue chip art and what is blue chip food? But we're, we're starting to shake that up a lot and, mm -hmm. and in ways that are very, very profound and significant. And, and I think still where I'm most disturbed by where the, the food media hasn't really come to terms with their own role is that over and over again, we see that these chefs who are running toxic environments, whether it's, you know, sexual harassment or just a toxic workplace that is um, abusive of people's humanity in order to get, you know, the ultimate finest product of the night, you know, or the, the idea of that tough love is, is actually a valuable way of, of running a company culture, all of that, um, that, that the food media still hasn't moved off of that. And so that over and over again, we see all these, you know, James Beard winners or highly touted restaurants that turns out the chef is a creep or, and I don't mean like a sexual creep necessarily, but possibly, but not <laughs> a good person, not fostering right. good culture. And um, um, I don't think the food media has come to terms with their own role in that. And, um, and, and we're still 
seeing it over and over again that somebody gets called out and you go, well, how did they get here? How did, right. how did that person rise to the, to, to the level that they were at? And uh, that's a story. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and even though some of the food writers have written, you know, done deep research and gotten people to talk about it, it's like, how did they get there in the beginning? And what is food media's role in that? And, and I have, I guess I have some, you know, bad feelings about um, right. where and why I wasn't always considered part of the, the, the in crowd, whether it was the in crowd by other chefs or the in crowd by the food media themselves. And a lot of that had to do in its time or in that time mm-hmm. had to do with that I, I didn't carouse in the way that um, was uh, what was the dominant social force um, in the food world at the time. And that that looked, that was exciting that, you know, that people were living large, um, staying up all night and um, drinking hard and and eating excessively and doing blowouts. I didn't want to live that way. So that's not as good a story um, as people who are living large, Mm -hmm. you know, still on my path and feel better about it. And my body feels better about it too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is interesting because I think that I've also wanted to see that sort of internal media criticism where, you know, when there's a great piece maybe at Grub Street about Mission Chinese food was supposed to be this good restaurant to work at, but actually it was terrible and toxic, the same as all these other ones. And you want to say like, well, where where is the criticism of how this place was built up? It didn't come out of nowhere. Like part of the fostering of the toxicity comes from the hype that we give to restaurants. And, and but it's true. There hasn't been a real moment of, of looking inside and saying, well, what is our role in this really? Um, it's kind of just like this, this vague correction, of course, that, you know, and, and again, I, I wrote about it, but I also, and I'm guilty of it too, because I don't know how else to do my job, but, uh, you know, where we just kind of take chefs for their words on whether they're good people or not now, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like, and we're not really uh, still necessarily doing the, the real inquiry into how, how things really are in their kitchen. And, and, you know, and now like food and wine changed its thing. So now it's like, it was like 25 people doing good in, in, in the food and beverage industry. And it's like, well, why don't we just stop? putting people on pedestals like why don't we just tell stories and it it really is upsetting to me (laughs) that that we don't have a real reckoning because it's still trying to sell in the same old way just kind of put it in new packaging yeah i i agree with all of that alicia and you know there's a way that as people as individuals that we still succumb to even if we are trying to get our politics right, or we understand the stories that came before, there's a way that we are excited, or actually maybe I want to say titillated, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's this, I mean, that's part of it too, is just like, why is it that, you know, where did it go wrong that food, food is sensual, Right. right. And, um, and it makes us feel when we have great food experiences, it makes us feel great to be alive. It makes us um, thrilled. But it and what makes it tilt into sexual. Mm-hmm. Right. So and that's why I use the word titillate. Right. Because there are certain chefs who cross that boundary 
I don't mean with their workers or with customers. I mean in their in the way that they talked about food, that it crossed over into a sexual place. I mean, look what we called it. We called it food porn, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I was horrified when I first heard that term. I mean, it's like, I love photographs of beautiful food, but food porn? <laughs> All of a sudden, we've we've taken it to a place that is the debasement of one of the most glorious things that that our body has sensitivity to, and food is right there with it. It's such a debasement of of people's beautiful cooking to call a photograph of their dish food porn, and so we continue to support that that way of thinking about it. Um, you know, through travel films and, and, you know, what, you know, look, I, I, I love travel and I love food travel. It's been part of how I've expanded my mind and, you know, experience my understanding of what it means to be human and the glory of diversity on the planet, both in terms of what grows here and who lives here and what people have done with it. Yeah. And I mean, in the book, too, you talk about Anthony Bourdain in a way that I think, you know, most people, I don't know, (laughs) we've kind of like deified him in a way. And you write about how the early bravado, the devil maker attitude, and then the the later coming to focus on land labor culture. For you, what was his influence when you were in the restaurant? And how do you perceive things now? Like, what is what is do you think of his lasting influence? Well, you know, I think he gave license to a lot of the bad behaviors. Um, yeah. And so I hold him, I mean, it was there, but he romanticized that. And um, and I think that was really detrimental to the restaurant world, um, to us culturally. He moved off of that and people really came to um, love his travel pieces and his exploration, you know, that and felt that he had compassion and was able to connect to all kinds of people. And, and that's, there, there's truth there. I mean, he certainly um, was no longer following the oat cuisine that he um, started out following in the same way that I was following that. 30 or 40 years ago. I, I guess I think that what, what he moved on to certainly opened people's eyes to the, the, the wonders of the world and, and different food and different cultures. Um, but he still loved being outrageous and, and get attention for that. And so uh, he continued to be a, a controversial speaker and and uh, and people love that they love extremities but look at look at you know what we have politically going on in this country now too that that we don't have real conversation we have people who are um, at the extremities and saying outrageous things and some people get behind it and vote for those people and 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 other people are offended by it and vote against that person um so he's complicated um yeah no very much <laughs> well, um, to talk about kind of another sort of passing mentioned in the book, but it's actually you're going to talk to Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy tomorrow for MoFAD. And she emailed me while she was reading the book to say that you mentioned working at Hubert's because we're we had a conversation at the end of last year where 
she was like, you're the only person I've ever heard talk about the vegetarian compass. And like, so we, we are both the only people who have ever talked about this book and this person together. Mm -hmm. So when you write in the book about working for her, her, um, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I wanted to, you know, if you could tell me more about that experience, because it, it seems there's not a lot of information because she passed away so young and, and before her cookbook even came out. Um, and you mentioned that it was where you were introduced to going to the Union Square Green Market. And so can you tell me more about what she was like, what the restaurant was like, and, you know, how a vegetable kind of focused restaurant was was operating in that time? Right. So Hubert's was a fundamental restaurant in my development and in mm -hmm. my life for, for many reasons. One is I met Susan, my wife there, mm -hmm. um, but there were a group of people who were cooking there. And maybe this is true for lots of people that they have sort of their, their coming of age restaurant or they're, they're still connected to those people. And Hubert's was that um, coming of age for me in, in many respects. So after sort of doing my, my attempts at Haute Cuisine and then finding regional food by working at La Colombe d'Or, then I ended up at another restaurant that was sort of trying to do haute cuisine, but from an American point of view, and that was the Quilted Giraffe. I had a lot of problems with what that food was, but I learned a lot there. And it, at least it was being run by um, Americans. And so that there was a culture there and an excitement about food that was different than um, what was happening or my perception of what was happening in the French world at the time of Midtown French. Then I went to France and I studied with Madeleine Kamen and she was all about the regional cuisines of France and Italy. And so she really pointed me towards not just cooking f with the seasons, but that all these cuisines, all these regional foods grow out of what was indigenous to the region and these wonderful dishes are 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 classics because everybody cooks them because that's what everybody has on hand and so i was very excited by that notion and exploring the world of food through that and so after riding my bicycle around france and and italy and a little bit of spain um following my time with her, I came back to the United States and I landed at Hubert's. And what they were realizing that they were interested in, and we were part of shaping that, but it was this idea of new American cuisine, that is the historical foods of this land and the different peoples who came to live here um, from different places, but also what grows here, um, what's great that um, we can work with instead of flying things in from from Europe. And so that's the beginning of the whole farm-to-table movement. And so Len and Karen, uh, Len Allison, Karen Hubert, a couple, um, they married while we were working together, but they had been a couple for a long time. They weren't cooks, really. I mean, they weren't professional cooks. They, they came to it from the world of philosophy and filmmaking, and they kind of had this idea of, of, of a group project. And, and so Len saw himself as an auteur, that he was, he was film director without knowing anything about film, right? He was mm -hmm. chef director without knowing anything about food. And so he gathered interesting people together and threw them into the lab of the kitchen and said, let's see what 
comes out of it and it'll be interesting and we'll serve it to people. And that was an mm -hmm. incredibly exciting and liberating experience to, to be part of. It wasn't necessarily a good way to run a restaurant, but there was some very exciting food that, that came out of that and people that we got to meet, one of them being um, my friend, Romy Doraton, who now has Purple Yam out in Ditmas Park um, and had Sandrian in Soho for many years. Masami Kawada, who I met through, um, we did a um, exchange program with Omen Restaurant, the Japanese restaurant on Thompson Street in Soho, because it was across the street from where I lived. And I was so excited by that Japanese food, which was, again, kind of regional um, food of Kyoto, not um, just trying to be a sushi restaurant, but cook with all mm -hmm. these interesting ingredients. And so we did an exchange and, and, um, and um, Masami taught me all kinds of things about um, food and technique and Japanese approach to um, cooking. And so Len and Karen provided the environment in which all of that exploration could take place. And mm -hmm. um, that was supportive to so many cooks. Karen, you know, she was, <laughs> it was interesting. Len kind of ran the show because he was a, um, the bulldog or a more dominant person in their relationship. But she was the one with the real food sensitivity. Um, she, mm -hmm. You know, was sort of like, when she tasted something that was more important critique than when he tasted something. She wasn't a very, um, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you, um, at, at, <laughs> at, at least in this moment in uh, her evolution or her involvement in the restaurant, she wasn't a very important culinary force. Um, mm -hmm. She... She had a vision, but she was letting him run the show in many ways. And then, of course, we were mm -hmm. this force of 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 all these um, food artists doing our thing. Um, so I wouldn't say that I really learned much from her in terms of being vegetable focused. I, mm -hmm. I, I although I mean I think it's the, I think it's there in in certain respects. I mean, it's just like, I've always known that what was most exciting about flavor on the plate was not the protein, as in the animal protein, mm -hmm. but rather um, the vegetables, what the garnishes were and, and what, that, what those flavor combinations were. Len and Karen were very close with um, Evan and Judith Jones. They ate at the restaurant regularly and they socialized with them and I think that um, as they moved into the world of the professional food world that they looked to Evan and Judith as um, mentors to them I don't think that they always had their own voice yet again mm -hmm. that was that was to our advantage as a group of cooks who were looking to um, find their own voice that we there was a structure but not necessarily a dominant um, culinary voice there right 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 Karen um, <laughs> I don't know you know it, it's interesting so she wrote a book um, it's funny Alicia because I don't right. even, I didn't even remember that she had that this book came out first of all um, it came out after she died um, it was sad for us that she passed away Len Len and Karen had moved to Hawaii, had left New York, partly to be in an, in an environment where they could deal with her illness. 
better and try and treat her in some more holistic ways. We didn't end well. I mean, mostly, again, my relationship with Len um, more than my relationship with Karen, but that was sort of, you know, she came along for the ride. Um, she wrote a book that was a thinly veiled um, fictional version of life at Hubert's. And right. she was completely ungenerous in her <laughs> um, depiction of me. And um, and I was very angry about that. And I felt that I had given everything to them. It was the most important thing in my life at that point. And, and it was so ungenerous, not to say that I didn't have faults and <laughs> things to learn and ways to grow, but I, I, um, they, they depended on me. Um, mm -hmm. And I gave them everything I had and all my good spirit, not just hard work, but I gave them my spirit and none of that other than that she called me a workhorse. Um, but she, it was in this way that she was just like, we're going to exploit this workhorse because that's what he's good for. And it felt so debased. Um, and I remember telling Len after she died that that hurt me. And, um, and he said, well, that was, you know, fiction. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I felt that that was, he was deflecting by, because mm -hmm. it was barely fiction. So, um, <laughs> so I didn't realize that she put out a cookbook, but when you, when you sent me that on Friday or Saturday, I went on uh, line and bought a copy to have a look at it and read his foreword. And so I'll see what, what it is that she was, <laughs> she was thinking about. She, well, they, I'm, the other, I just yeah. uh, one, one other thing of that course. I just thought of because of your interest, they were also very good friends with, um, Anna Thomas. Oh, right. You, from the vegetarian epicure, the vegetarian epicure. And they were filmmakers yeah. as well. And so like, I don't know what's in Karen's book in terms of recipes or whatever, but, um, she would bring, uh, dishes to uh, us that, that came out of there or the things that she was eating. And I want to tip my hat to Len and Karen was that they had, they, in realizing that they didn't really know anything about food, they brought in guest chefs. Um, this is before my time um, when they were in Brooklyn. And so they had developed relationships with, among other people, um, Mater Jaffrey and, uh, and Edna Lewis. And so I got to know those women because they came around to the restaurant. And so that's part of if Karen's interest in vegetarian food, again, I don't know what's in the book, but Mater was, was an important influence for them as well and a respected cook and, yeah. and, and, um, and Edna as well, who we, those of us who were in the restaurant on the times that she came to eat and came into the kitchen and discovering her book, which um, is about, you know, and, and Judith Jones was her editor, right. right? And that that book was about seasonal cooking, right? I mean, mm -hmm. sort of like she's telling you um, from the community, the free black community that she was raised in about pig killing in November. And so that, all of that was a revelation to me in terms of that the industrialized food supply has evolved to try to be ubiquitous, right? To be manufactured, that you can have this item any time of the year, anywhere that you are. 
and that that's mm-hmm. not what food has been traditionally, and rather to explore a way of um, living in the moment and responding to what's in season. And so that isn't just a, um, you know, a fancy elitist um, project that I can do because I drift in and out of Union Square um, farmer's market, but it's really the way people have lived and and is economical because we're not shipping things all over the planet so that we can have them all the time and burning fossil fuels in order to do that, causing climate change. Um, or what it what it, what does it mean to try to have um, uh, animal protein or or even perishable vegetables on a year round basis? What does that do to the flavor? What does that do to um, the people who are producing that food? Um, you know, and and to be much more that local ha- is political in that way um, mm-hmm. because it can. Not to say that local doesn't have issues of labor exploitation involved in it as well, because it does. But when we eat locally, there are fundamental um, societal changes that can come with that. And and they have implications that are, as I said, about climate change as well as just what's enjoying what's what's here and, and, and realizing that Life is transient, and 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 uh, we can't have it just because we want it or because we have money um, all the time. Right, right. Well, um, related to that, there have been so many stories lately about like fake claims of local seasonal food on restaurant menus. There was the Willow Inn thing where they were serving people Costco chicken and stuff. And in the book, you write about hiring a chef who wanted to put spring peas on a menu before they would have been available. And how that's a it, that was a, like a constant struggle to maintain integrity in that way. And so I wanted, why do you think that this has become kind of a thing? Like there was the big expose in Florida also a few years ago about farm to table restaurants lying about being farm to table. Like why is this something that people have don't don't allow themselves to be honest about or or to you know pursue nuance with or maybe you know explain why something couldn't be local or available or that sort of thing. Like what is your take on that? Yeah. Well, it's complicated, Alicia. I mean, you know, part. I'm not going to excuse any of it, right? Yeah. But, um, economics drives people at times to make um, decisions that uh, where you cheat or you fudge it. I mean, it's just like you know, but the idea that this guy was buying Costco organic chickens when he was saying that he was sourcing food completely from the island, obviously, is is filled with deceit. Um, I never maintained that everything that we cooked with and sourced was, was local, but some people thought that that's what I was doing and, you know, went after me for having a lemon tart on the menu or something like (laughs) that. So the conversation, you know, the, the extent to which people are interested in having the conversation about where our food comes from or how we source it is, you know, over dinner um, or on the menu is limited. Um, mm-hmm. People on a certain level, lots of people just want dinner and they don't really want to know the backstory. But plenty of our customers were interested in the backstory 
and that's why they came to us. But there are still plenty of people who aren't interested in it and, um, and have yet to embrace that or um, change with that. Right. Today, the, so, food, so farm to table was both political, but it was also the fashion, the food fashion of the moment. And in many ways, um, the food fashion has shifted away from that. And, and, the, and the political struggle or the, the food awareness has shifted away from farm to table in many ways as well. That is that we're, we're talking about labor a lot. Um, more than we are about how the food was produced or where it comes from. And we're talking about what are the conditions in the restaurant itself, whereas that wasn't something that we had a whole lot of awareness around um, when we were writing on our menu that, um, it, you know, that the carrots came from Guy Jones's farm or, um, you know, that it was Maytag blue cheese or whatever. So... That's a, I don't know whether that's the pendulum swinging in another, in the other direction, but it certainly is, is a shift of focus. It's a good shift of focus. I worry sometimes that um, some of the restaurants that are now all about identity have stopped sourcing in the way um, that is still thinking about the sustainability issues um, because Again, the financial pressures to run a, a financially viable restaurant remain. It's really, really hard. And um, to do both, that is to buy sustainably sourced ingredients, um, good for the environment and good for people, and run a restaurant that's good for the people that are there is, is a huge challenge. And, um, and it, but it's where we're at. Right. It's, right. it's sort of what we face here and now today. And, and so I think it's a, a great moment and, a, and an important moment to try and say we can do both. We must do both. And what mm -hmm. does that look like? And most importantly is in, in that part of the whole equation is what is the what then is the cost of going out for dinner? And are we are we really prepared to pay mm -hmm. the full cost of, of food um, of of dining out? Mm -hmm. And I think people still uh, want to buy their fancy cars and their fancy watches and um, and restore certain ways of travel um, post pandemic and aren't necessarily ready to say. Oh yeah, I'm good with a 30% increase in um, the cost of dining out, and what that will mean for me, which might mean I eat out 30% less, but I'm doing mm -hmm. it in ways and in support of companies that um, that are that are doing it in ways that reflect my values. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, it's uh, it was wonderful to have the. Um, the opportunity to talk with you in this way, Alicia, and um, the fact that you read into those parts of the book is exciting to me um, because people, people, uh, you know, in that same way that that um, our food is a self-portrait. I mean, people find things in the book that resonate for them, and and um, there's lots there. There's lots of nuggets to be had in what's good, and I'm so glad that you found nuggets that um, are really important to me and are there for um, 
for people to think about. So I'm glad awesome. you thought about them. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have read the book and to have uh, had this chat with you. So thank you so much.